um, for the experience that many, many of us have Tell us about um, your uh, your family life as uh, your mom and dad and, and uh, growing up all of you. Well, I didn't exactly grow up in Holland when we immigrated back in 56. I was only 15 mm -hmm. uh, months old, but I have four older sisters and uh, they do have some memory of that time. But I also know that um, our Catholic faith has always been so very important to the point where my mom was only convinced um, and it had to come through prayer to even consider coming to the United States because she really kind of liked it in Holland. But my dad was pretty insistent on wanting to take his family uh, to America which is still the land of the free and home of the brave and still uh, deserving of um, uh, our gratitude and our patriotism that um, she says, okay, Lord, I will go if it means the salvation of my children and our faith. And God answered her prayer. Uh, we are all strong in our faith. And it comes from a long line of, of faith-filled people. Uh, after my mother died, we got to disperse, you know, her belongings. And I came home with a with a prayer book. Gosh, it was my grandfather's, my dad's dad. And it was so well-worn from the pages that you could almost see fingerprints on this book. And uh, I also came home with my dad's rosary. And... It was a big rosary with these big dark brown beads, but it had worn down from use uh, down to the original color of the wood. And then I took a good look at the cross, and I joke about it in the book a little bit because it, it made me smile. But you know, he basically just prayed Jesus right off of the mm -hmm. right off the cross. We had the only thing left was one of his hands, one of his nailed hands, and it made me smile knowing how that how many times you know they prayed the rosary and we did that every night after dinner like many Catholics and um I cherish those memories. You know you, you in the book you speak about um, your parents when they came to, to know each other and mm -hmm. the experience of the uh, French Catholicism is not uh, rare in the diocese of Spokane because there were several priests who I believe um and Father Lee would know this because He's spoken to me about one of them. Um, they were Millville missionaries originally, which I believe was an order of missionaries founded in England, but there was a strong Dutch presence. And some of those priests eventually left as seminarians and came and were priests of diocese. But outside of that, when we think of French Catholicism, at least my experience was shaped by uh, what happened after the council, uh, right. yeah. the Dutch uh, catechism, for example, and burning Pope John Paul in effigy and the yeah. uh, in the, in the 80s, but when I read the book and I and hear the experience of, of your mom and dad of a, of a Catholicism uh, in the 1930s, uh, 19, they were born in the 20s, it was a strong Catholicism, um, and evidently, as you said, they, they shared it with you, but tell me something from the stories you heard, um, how they were growing up, and, and how the faith was, how life was in Holland prior to the war. Most of the children in the neighborhood were going to St. Bridget's Catholic School. Um, the churches were always full. Uh, the, the mass was celebrated. Um, 
nobody or very few people would, would miss mass on Sundays. People dressed up, you know, because it was a very special place to go. Uh, my mother would be, would just spend hours, even as a child, eight or nine or 10 years old, um, she'd sneak out of the house and she'd go into the church and just sit there and just look at the cross and, and just, just, you know, be with the Lord. And uh, she tells me, she told me a story one time where uh, the priest, the pastor finally came up to her and said, don't you think you should be going home? It's dark outside. And mom says, yeah, I probably should, but I don't know if you missed me. You know, mm -hmm. these were some of her thoughts. But, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about mom's mom's prayer. Oh, yeah. and, and it she so had her prayer answered because you brought up Catholicism in Holland now, and it's not just Holland, but it's in Europe in general. Um, there are very few people pulling the pews up right now. Uh, I, I'm happy to say that some of my relatives are reading my book, so, you know, God willing, maybe it'll stoke a real flame on getting a few God blesses back on Facebook and, mm -hmm. and, and hearing words that, um, you know, I don't imagine they speak that often because, you know, it's it's not practice. No. And in, not. in reading about their wives, how they met each other, your, your dad being uh, a good friend of uh, your mom's or one of her older brothers yeah. and coming to visit, and I really is a great sense of innocence that. Obviously, this was a time and a place in the world, whether it was Holland or a small town in the United States, uh, where faith was strong, the family life was strong, and they worked. They were they were together. They were woven very closely, yeah. and all of this changes um, with the German uh, occupation and the Nazis. And Dutch people had nothing to 
you know, have taken over. Uh, that was that was uh, the mind of Hitler at that time. And I don't need to go into any of those details. There's enough books and movies that everybody knows about, you know, of the mind of Hitler. But, um, it was a very, very sad time because up until then, uh, everybody still felt like they had a future to look forward to, especially my mom and dad. Um, dad was working in the shipyards of Rotterdam, uh, making a good living. And mom uh, had just been accepted into a fashion school. She was very, very creative with uh, all kinds of materials, making patterns. She, was, she had planned on opening up her own little shop called the House of Caesar. And you know, she had dreams and aspirations as well. And she was 15 when, when the occupation came and Papa was 19. And he started doing espionage and sabotage for the Dutch government that had fled to England and, um, and also for the English because of course they were concerned about you know Hitler's uh, occupying so much of Europe already at that time. So he was involved for about seven, seven and a half months or so when um, he was caught in the shipyards in Rotterdam with dynamite ready to do some big, big destruction because they were getting ready to turn much of the harbor into uh, the war machine for the Nazis. And dad would rather have destroyed where he worked than have the Nazis be able to use it for so their purposes. In the book you talk about, um, as your dad shared with you, there were three responses of the uh, Dutch people mm -hmm. to the German occupation. One was trying to live as normally as possible. Yeah. The second was to collaborate with the Germans, mm -hmm. and which is always a dangerous habit to collaborate with the enemy. And the third was the resistance. Now, we oftentimes when we think of the, uh, the resistance of the French, mm -hmm. but this is news to me that I did not know much about, um, although my, as I mentioned to you, my brother-in-law, Gary Dambacher, um, his father uh, was from Holland, and I never had a chance to talk to his dad about his experience, but when you write about your dad, it, it was very clear, your dad was a man of principle, that there was only one option for your father, and that was to be the resistance. Exactly. And so he joins the group, and his others come together, and then they're caught. And tell us a little bit about that. Um, you, your dad accounted to you being brought into a prison camp, was it? Well, or, not right away. Okay. When he was first captured, uh, they they rounded up um, what was left of dad, what dad referred to as the uh, beginning of the underground, the first wave, he referred to it. And um, there were about 40, 41 men that were captured that day, taken to the jail in Blavia, and then immediately taken to a place called the Orange Hotel, which uh, was converted by the Nazis. It was a, a beautiful hotel that uh, was in a town called Scrivenham. I won't have you. <laughs> well, when they read about it, they'll know the correct pronunciation if they're listening. But anyways, it's a beautiful place, very close to the ocean. And he was in that prison for about uh, three months or so when he was then taken by uh, trucks to the train station and then loaded up on the trains to a place he wasn't prepared for, and that was Buchenwald concentration camp. 
Um, was that also in Holland? No, that was, that's in Germany, Germany about 300 miles away. So he just assumed um, that he would be spending the war years uh, in Holland mm -hmm. in this in this place, but that was not to be the case. He, uh, one of the things that uh, they looked for when they moved people around to different uh, concentration camps was what use they could be to uh, to the Germans, to the Nazis. And because my dad was a machinist and they were building factories, in fact, Buchenwald was not an extermination camp per se. It was a, it was a working factory and um, labor camp. So they let him go there and took him there along with the other resistance. And uh, he survived over four years in the camp. And I asked him more than once, how did you survive that when so many other people didn't? He says, well, he says, I had a trade. Um, they they knew I knew something, I could do something. And uh, so he was valuable to them. He says, I wasn't married. Uh, he had shared many times that uh, as soon as someone started talking about their loved ones back home or their wife or children, he says many of them would be dead within two weeks. They just couldn't take the suffering anymore. Um, and he has such a strong faith and his youth. Mm -hmm. He was young, he had a trade. Uh, he had the, you know, God's protection and love uh, in his faith. And he was still single at the time. Yeah, in, in the book, and he goes into detail about uh, just how cruel yeah. the Nazis were. And the, the Germans in this uh, camp, how literally had eat one piece of stale uh, bread, water, um, with maybe a few vegetables and passed as well as food, be forced to come to use the bathroom, mm -hmm. the delouse, I mean, just the way to, and, and here we are, we're taking this, this, this show in October, so respect like month, mm -hmm. but then the total lack of respect uh, for the dignity of these individuals at the hands of the Nazis. Yes. And um, it's done, you write in such an um, easily readable style, but it does where it, you almost as if you're witnessing it. And I think that's a sign of a uh, very author. And this book would make a great movie. Um, I just said many movies that are done, but this, what, what makes this such, such a beautiful um, witness uh, book is the faith that, that they mentioned permeates your father and your mother, but during this time when he was a prisoner um, of that. And later on, of course, um, we can be encouraged to, to read this book to, and listeners to do that, to, to get this book. Um, the war is over, and then what is to me so clear is your dad's gratitude to the United States, yes. um, to the Americans who have come um, and liberated, truly liberated, unlike what the Nazis were saying, yes. liberated. And uh, liberation, uh, I believe, in Holland was um, May 5th of 1945. And your dad, as you quote, your dad said, we need to give thanks to the American liberators. And I think, again, I mentioned why it shows significance. Uh, too often, I think, uh, generations, uh, mm -hmm. before we, we began to show how when I was in college, we registered for the job that I would serve. Mm -hmm. And I think um, many of the younger generation haven't. We cannot forget why people gave their life for freedom. And yes. uh, you, you 
articulate that and as you're kind of sharing with you. Sometimes the experiences are so painful, um, the memories are not shared. And uh, maybe before we even say for a break, was there ever a reluctance on your dad's part not to tell? No, and I feel very, very fortunate. Uh, I was always a very inquisitive uh, child and an inquisitive adult. I, I wanted the story. I wanted, you know, I wanted them to unfold it. And the older I got, and I was able to peel back yet another layer that they, both of them, were willing to share it. Uh, not so much in the youth. I got just enough to know, okay, dad was in the concentration camp, not fully understanding what all that meant. But but then I learned about it in school, and then and then it became very personal. So um, yeah, it was just unfolded to me all the time. We're going to take a break now. When we get back, there's um, a lot to hear um, about the decision to come to the United States, as you referenced early on in our show. And then from East Queens to Salem, Oregon, uh, how eventually you um, meet the man who be your husband and get married. And then the second part of the book, because this is a book with two parts. That second part of the experience, and maybe kind of touching some of that. And then uh, we've got just a little time to talk, but hopefully, again, our listening audience will um, get the book Long Shall You Live and read this story that is, is remarkable. Let's take a look. in Europe after World War II, wanting to go to other places. And 
Uh, many of the people from Poland went to Canada, Australia, the United States, but Dad specifically put his name down to become an American. How do you end up in the same wording? Do they have Well, <laughs> there's lots of stories within this book describing, you know, why, why would I need to describe how uh, mom and dad found the sponsor except that it plays such an integral, integral part uh, of the story. Um, but it was it was a happenstance meeting by some friends of mom and dad's on a train in Europe. And I'm just going to leave it at that. There are many um, great little uh, teasers that you offer this book because uh, there's so much. And uh, as I mentioned, this just easily could be uh, a movie. It's really good that the rivers are here because they would play as a movie. They would want to play them. Somehow, especially Philip Crowley would try to be written into it. Uh, he, of course, is the only one studying in Europe extensively as a great knowledge in Europe. And Father Kirst, I think, looks like he could have been an extra World War II. So, yeah. um, but now we're not here for present. But let's talk about uh, your coming to, to Oregon and read a little bit about that. So well, what am I going to say now in this book? Let me, let me take it back just a little bit further. There is one thread that I will share with you in the book. And the thread is a date, and the date is April 13th. And April 13th is the a day that Grandma Patton walked through the uh, gates of, of Buchenwald just after liberation. And April 13th is the day that we landed 11 years later uh, in the United States in New York. And it, that date will come up a couple more times as well in the book. So you look for that, it's April 13th. Um, we've got pictures of, of the Statue of Liberty in the harbor, uh, things, pictures that my parents had only seen before in books was now something that, that automatically instilled this feeling of, wow, we really did this, we're here, we're here, well, for one, <laughs> we all survived the 90 journey on this old freighter called the Cote de Bear, which, which translated means the big bear. Uh, was this a Dutch one? It was it from Holland America. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's one bear for them. But anyways, yeah, it was a Holland America ship. Uh, and But it was used, it was refurbished and used for, for immigrants back then, made several trips. Um, so we got to New York and then got on a train that same day and went to Salt Lake City, where there were some, that was a three-day journey. And mind you, there's five little girls that have just done nine days on a ship and now three days trying to sleep on a train, you know, on top of the suitcases that were put together uh, to make a platform so that the kids could sleep. Um, did your parents speak any English? Mom did better than Papa. Okay. Yes. She did, but they had these books, English to Dutch, and Dutch to English translations. She learned it in school, but neither one was, you know, really fluent, but, but mom was. But it didn't take too long, but over time, that was something we knew we had to do was learn English, you know, to be a citizen, you learn English, and communicate, and become a part of the melting pot of our society, which was a real privilege and a real, um, Excitement, you know, my take on, on the American dream is bringing your, your cultures from around the world and blending them together and creating something beautiful that we can all call our own and celebrate each other's, you know, reasons for keeping your, 
important things like we did from Holland and the Dutch people. Um, but keeping away the things that made you want to leave the country right. in the first place. I think and that's crucial because then you come with gratitude for that space and the opportunity. We have less than a minute and I um, there's so much we can talk about. We're gonna invite you back in, in January. Um, but uh, maybe just something that's, there's a second part of this book that I'll give you to you. Maybe just a brief little little advertisement for that. Just to, just to let you know that uh, I'm one of uh, millions of uh, people who were raised, and, and my sisters were as well, uh, by someone who lived through the Holocaust. And it does imprint on you in a different way, I think, than, than other people. And I talk about that in part two. It is really more of a memoir of a second generation survivor and some real miraculous things that have happened in my life that has taken me full circle back to Holland again. So I invite you to take a look at it. I'm, um, it it's been a real journey and a real gift. And the Lord has blessed me with this opportunity to share it with you, and I really, really appreciate Thank you so much. Maureen Henderson, who um, I met when I was at Pat, uh, long, long, and her book is entitled, Long Shall You Live. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.